Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Today we'll look at Ardashir I, founder of the Sasanian Persian dynasty, which is remembered mostly in the West for being a great rival to the late Roman and early Byzantine empires, but was much more than that. The Sasanids often outclassed the Romans in power, and its cultural influence became the basis for much of the Persian Islamic world that can be seen even to this day. Although we're close to the general region where last episode was, thankfully it's 1,500 years later, and with the familiarity of some of the Roman sources, hopefully my pronunciations won't be quite as bad, although I can't make any promises. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com, and if you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. And don't forget, I'm giving away those replica coins and the reproduction of the Knight's Oath from the House of Savoy to five winners who leave iTunes reviews or donate any amount of money to the podcast this season. The link for donations can be found on the website. All right, let's get going. This is Season 3, Episode 2, Ardashir I, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Ardashir was born in what was nominally the Parthian Empire, around 180 AD. This empire, at its height, extended from Syria, eastern Anatolia, and Armenia, down through Mesopotamia, across the Iranian plateau, into the traditional Parthian homeland south and east of the Caspian Sea, across into Bactria. Ardashir was born in a region known as Pars, which is a large area in today's southern Iran, called Fars province. Once known as Persis, it is the basis for the word Persia and was the original homeland of a dynasty that created what was, at the time, the largest empire the world had ever seen, Achaemenid Persia. We don't know a great deal about the situation of Ardashir's birth. He is generally presumed to be the son of a man named Papak, sometimes Babak. Papak may have been the son of a man named Sasan, hence the name of Ardashir's dynasty, the Sasanids. Another telling states that Sasan was Ardashir's father and a descendant of Darius III, the last Achaemenid king, and that Papak was his maternal grandfather. There's more versions of the story, and this confusion indicates to some that Ardashir tried to create as many stories as possible to help legitimize his reign once he started building an empire. It appears that, in addition to being at least minor vassal kings, the family was labeled as a sort of protector of the gods. It was a common thing, certainly in the ancient world, to give local royalty the honor of leading religious ceremonies. Some scholars believe that among the gods they were honoring were the old Achaemenid kings, Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, and the rest, who may have been deified by the Seleucid dynasty that ruled over the region after Alexander the Great conquered it. When control over that region shifted from the Seleucids to the Arsacid dynasty of Parthia, this tradition continued. Religious ties to the old empire or not, 
There were secular political attempts at linkages. According to the Cambridge History of Iran, quote, the ruins of Persepolis and Parsargadae alone would have been a standing reminder of the past glory of the area, even if knowledge of a great empire for the most part had been forgotten. The names, such as Darius and Artaxerxes, on the coins of local rulers who held sway here before the rise of the Sasanians, testify to a certain continuity of Achaemenian traditions, if not to an actual descent in a sideline from the royal Achaemenian family itself, unquote. Even the name Artashir is a Middle Persian version of the Greeks Artaxerxes, the name of a few Achaemenid emperors. At the beginning of the 3rd century AD, when Artashir was a young man, four large empires spanned almost the entire length of the Eurasian continent. Starting in the west was the Roman Empire, which held the Mediterranean Basin, up through modern-day France, England, and Belgium, parts of today's Austria, Hungary, and Romania, through Turkey, and down around to the western Levant, and all of North Africa. Much of the Nile in Egypt was part of the empire as well. East of Rome's holding on the Mediterranean, which reached as far as the Tigris River at this point, was the next empire, Parthia. We'll get into these both a bit more in a minute. At this point, the Parthians nominally controlled from the Tigris River to what is essentially the eastern border of Iran today. Continuing east, the Kushan Empire controlled Bactria and the upper Indus River Valley, much of today's Afghanistan and Pakistan. East of this, north of the Himalayas, lay the states that were nominally under Han China's control before you go further east and get to Han China itself. The Han Dynasty was on its way out, though, and its territories were being divided up among its most powerful warlords. Back west, south of Rome's Nile holdings in Africa, was the Kingdom of Kush, smaller than it had once been, as Aksum was on the rise a bit to the east. In the Americas, the Nazca culture was dominant in the Andes region of today's Peru, and the Maya were on the cusp of what is called their Classical Period, which is considered to have started in the middle of the 3rd century. Back in Eurasia, the Roman Empire was still at its height. Septimius Severus was the emperor until his death in 211, at which point still being emperor becomes a bit difficult. After that, his dynasty ruled for another 20 years or so, although not exactly with great emperors. This was followed by the crisis of the 3rd century, beginning in 235, when Rome was really in existential turmoil. Rome was about to enter this period of decline at the dawn of the 3rd century AD, but its biggest enemy, its traditional outside threat since the days of the late Republic, the Parthian Empire, was already in decline. The Parthian Empire, to whom Crassus had lost an entire army and his life at the Battle of Cari in 53 BC, was shrinking. Septimius Severus had invaded and captured the important cities of Seleucia and Ctesiphon in 198. The ruling Arsacid dynasty had never really had a truly centralized government, and its vassal kingdoms were beginning to loosen from their grip at this point. Artashir's father, Pabak, probably laid the groundwork for his son. He may have been the king of a small area in Farce with bigger aspirations, or at the very least he was an important local religious leader. At some point, probably around the year 205 AD, 
Pabak rose up and began taking territory around him. If he wasn't already in charge there, then he took the local capital of his stalker. If he was already in charge there, then he started acting like an independent ruler or actually proclaimed Persian independence from the Parthians. The religious aspect of the family may have been important to this initial uprising. Some sources have Pabak as the priest of a fire temple, something ubiquitous with Zoroastrian religion, dedicated to the local goddess Anahid. She's a major Zoroastrian deity, but she was also, at the time, probably associated in a significant way with Persian warriors. So the cult around her may have been used by Pabak to help gather his forces and gain support from the local Persian soldiers. Only a few miles from the ancient Achaemenid capital of Persepolis, Istakar became a religious as well as a commercial center in the region. Some scholars believe, depending on the family origins, that Pabak's conquest began with the help of the dynasty's namesake, Sasan, the head priest of the area. Whatever the origins, the Parthians were preoccupied with their own issues and could not come and defend their vassal king against Pabak's uprising. They may have seen this as a squabble between two vassals, and as long as they both pledge loyalty, why bother? But it is also evidence of a deeply weakened Parthian state that we don't believe there was any real response. The Parthian Empire was busy, dealing with attacks from the east, as well as at least one uprising in the province of Media in the northwest of today's Iran. In 208, the Parthian king Volagasis V died, and he was succeeded by his son, conveniently named Volagasis VI. This did not bring stability to the empire, though. In about 213, his other son, Artabanus, rebelled. Artabanus took Media. Volagasis held Babylonia, the southern Tigris and Euphrates basin, and a civil war ensued. Ardashir may have had the same problem as Artabanus because Pabak didn't name Ardashir as his heir. Pabak had two sons, Shapur and Ardashir, and Shapur was the older one. Pabak gave priority to Shapur while he was able to get Ardashir named as the commander of a fortress in the south named Darabgird. Ardashir began to consolidate his own power there. Another interpretation of this time, of which we are not very clear, is that after Pabak asked the king of Istakar to name Ardashir as the commander of Darabgird, then Ardashir began to expand his own power there and convinced his father to revolt against the king. This was one of the ancient stories passed down, but sources aren't stellar for this period, and many modern scholars think that the fact that we found coins showing Pabak and Shapur as kings suggests that Ardashir didn't start the whole rebellion himself. More likely, they say, is that Ardashir was already in Darabgird when his dad's uprising began, or perhaps, being the second son, Ardashir wasn't too happy about being left out of the succession plan, and he fled to Darabgird. This would mean he started his own uprising against his father's uprising. We're not really sure, although there are no sources citing rebellion against his father. But Ardashir was probably fighting Shapur, and we do know that soon after some sort of rebellion was started by the family, Shapur died. One of the earliest Arabic-Persian sources says he died in an accident while on the way to fight his brother Ardashir. It may have been a lucky coincidence for Ardashir, or maybe the accident was arranged. Whatever the method, Shapur was dead. Pabak may have been dead as well, and by the 210s, 
Ardashir was leading a united rebellion himself in Parsis against the Parthian Empire. Parthia was certainly in a weakened position at the time, and Rome decided to try to take advantage. This helped Ardashir because the Parthian Empire was distracted. In the northwest part of the empire, Artabanus held Media, while Vologasus held Babylonia. In 215 BC, the Roman emperor Caracalla, son of Septimius Severus, was ready to follow up his dad with another invasion of their Parthian neighbor. After all, what better way to show how strong you are than by beating up an enemy that had been your rival for centuries, even if you're cheating a little now that the rival's pretty weak? Actually, Caracalla really wanted to follow up Alexander the Great specifically. He set up in Antioch, a leading city at the time in what is now Syria, and planned his attack. According to Cassius Dio, he went down to Alexandria in Egypt to see the Macedonian king's tomb, and killed a bunch of locals when he was there who were, you know, citizens of his own empire. Then he demanded of Vologases the return of a couple of fugitives. To his surprise, the Parthian king acquiesced, so his initial pretext for invasion was gone. So next, he demanded that Artabanus give up his daughter for marriage to Caracalla. Now, it's possible that in the break between these two demands, the fact that the first demand went to Vologases and the second went to Artabanus shows that the latter was overtaking the former as king of kings. This is what some scholars surmise but it may just have been the Romans going after two different marks at two different times. Either way, Artabanus said no to the marriage, because it would have probably meant Roman dominance over the whole empire. So, with his pretext, Caracalla invaded in the year 216. He marched his army through northern Mesopotamia, taking a bunch of fortresses and the regional capital of Arbella, modern Erbil. The Parthians didn't engage, because the weakened emperor had trouble raising an army from his vassals. That winter, though, as the Parthians regrouped, Caracalla was assassinated. In 217, Caracalla's successor, Macrinus, was ready to end the fighting, but Artabanus, now able to field an army, demanded total Roman withdrawal from all of Mesopotamia, as well as compensation for the events of the previous year. Macrinus didn't back down, and Artabanus attacked Macrinus that summer. At the Battle of Nispus, three days of fighting between the powerful Roman infantry and the Parthian heavy cavalry resulted in significant losses for both sides. But with less mobility, the Romans began to feel hemmed in, and they finally gave up, asking for peace. Macrinus was allowed to leave after acquiescing to most of Artabanus's earlier demands. This victory may seem like something that could help stabilize the Parthian Empire, but it didn't really help much. It may have delayed the inevitable by a few years, and it may have kept some allies, but these armies were mostly from vassal states. Artabanus had to deal with the typical grumbling of vassal lords during campaigns, and the heavy losses, even with victory, probably didn't make them happy. In addition, there wasn't much in the way of plunder to distribute, They were retaking allied lands. All the while, Ardashir was in Persis, growing his kingdom. Artabanus had ignored him, or at least was unable to do anything about him, for most of the time. According to the Cambridge Ancient History, besides the relative weakness of the Parthian state, 
and the Civil War that was ongoing, quote, another factor which aided the rise to supremacy of the Sasanians was the geography of the Fars province, which separated it from the rest of Iran by highlands to the north and a depression and desert to the east, with the Persian Gulf to the west and south. It had a kind of self-contained geographical unity, as well as sufficient manpower to give an ambitious ruler the means to conquer other parts of Iran not so favored by geography and population concentration as farce, unquote. Now, as I said, we don't really know how Ardashir went from commander of that fortress to king of Istakar to king of all of Fars. But we know he spent a decade or so after the beginning of the rebellion doing just that, subduing all of Persis. And then he moved on to the neighboring regions. And this might be what really got the attention of the Parthian leaders. In the early 220s, Artabanus sent his vassal kings from Susa and Sepahan, today's Isfahan, after Ardashir. But they were both defeated and killed, and Ardashir probably absorbed their lands into his own. Joseph Wieshofer in the Encyclopedia Aronica writes, quote, By 224, Ardashir had extended his sway of Persis and beyond into Elamias and Kerman, forcing submission to many local kings and vassals of the Parthians. The extent of his original realm cannot be determined precisely. During this first phase, he was already flouting Parthian authority through administrative actions, such as the foundation of new towns and probably the issue of coins, unquote. All right, so first he's talking about Kerman as in the old satrapy of Carmania, which is just to the east of Fars and is sometimes considered part of the larger Persis region. Elamias is the country in the far southwest of today's Iran. It's the ancient region of the Elamites. It was a semi-independent kingdom under the Parthians, a vassal state at best. Ardashir took it and ended their independence. It, or at least parts of it, are often called Susiana, named for the nearby city of Susa, which had been settled earlier than 4000 BC and served as one of the capitals for the Elamites, the Achaemenids, the Seleucids, and the Parthians. So Ardashir essentially held the entire south in between the Tigris and the mostly desert region of Gedrosia that Alexander had struggled across on his return from India, and these holdings included one of the empire's ancient capitals. He also, in an effort to demonstrate his power, began to build, as kings do. In Persis, Something like a hundred miles south of Istakar, near a fortress he had built about 15 years prior for defense, he built a large fire temple. Today it's called the Palace of Ardashir. It was a massive three-dome structure and was probably used for ceremony rather than as a new defensive fortification. It has the earliest surviving example of a squinch, a bit of construction that essentially fills in the corners between a square room and a round dome above it. It's a sort of diagonal connecting the corners of the square and allowing a mini arch under that, turning the square into an octagon at the top. This allows for construction of a fully supported dome and is considered an architectural innovation, possibly invented for this palace. Beyond the victories over the Parthian generals and the building of temples and cities, he also proclaimed himself king, and he had allies, not all necessarily yet under his rule. 
Further to the north, the rulers of Kirkuk and Adiabini, with its capital of Arbella, were on his side. Any of these things probably would have done the trick on their own. Altogether, Artabanus knew he had to act. Ardashir and his army sat in Elamias, west of Parsis, and there Artabanus came to meet the usurper. Somewhere near the regional capital of Shushtar, an island city on the Karun River that was about 45 miles east of Susa, the two armies met on a field called Hermazdagan. These armies may have been pretty evenly matched in some ways, certainly with similar tactics and makeup. But Ardashir, it seems, was a military innovator of sorts. Cataphracts were the heavy cavalry used by the Parthians, Sasanians, and within 50 years, the Romans, and he introduced a new style of armor for them. He incorporated a Roman-style chainmail armor of the time. It was more flexible than the scale armor, small metal plates, that covered the Parthians. This was used in conjunction with the scale armor that covered the cataphract's horse. This may have made the Sassanids a bit more agile and speedy than the Parthians, who were already famous for their agility and speed. Ardashir, with about 10,000 cavalry, or maybe it was 10,000 troops in total, who knows, is said to have been outnumbered by the Parthians. Ardashir's son, Shapur, led at least some, if not all, of the cavalry force. Both sides likely had infantry and horse archers engaged as well. But, like so many battles of this era that didn't involve the Romans, we don't know just how it unfolded. What we do know, however, are the results. Ardashir was victorious, and Artabanus, the Parthian emperor, was killed in battle. Shapur, at least in a massive rock carving commemorating the battle, killed a leading Parthian general. After his victory, before retiring with his forces, Ardashir proclaimed himself Shahanshah, king of kings, while still on the field of battle. This Sassanid defeat of the Parthian army and subsequent battlefield coronation is the traditional dating of the beginning of the Sassanid empire. Ardashir now truly was the Shah of Shahs, not just in name, but in fact. However, he still didn't control all of the territory of the old Parthian empire. Some of this is because there were holdouts. Some of this is because in the last decade or so, the Parthian Empire was quite a bit smaller than it once was. He may have had another, more official ceremony in Tessaphon, one of the Parthian capitals in 226. He almost certainly took this major city within a year or two of the Battle of Hermosgadon. Tessaphon is located pretty close to modern Baghdad. It's also pretty close to the ancient city of Babylon. So it's safe to say that he had also pushed Artabanus' brother Volagassus completely out of Babylonia by 226 as well. Tessaphon became the main capital of the Sasanian Empire, although, like many of the empires in the region before this time, there were other capitals that were used in the middle of the summer when Tessaphon became too uncomfortable from the heat. It was a city composed of several nearby towns. The names in Syriac and Arabic neither of which sounds anything like Tessaphon, actually translates to the cities. Its location made it a sensible capital, near a canal connecting the Tigris and the Euphrates, in the empire's agricultural heartland in southern Mesopotamia and along major trade routes. So, despite the Persian dominance of this new empire, 
its main capital remained outside of Persia. Next, Ardashir set out to conquer parts of the Northwestern Empire. He also informed the Romans that he would be retaking all of the Achaemenid lands, which were his by ancient right, and that they were welcome to retreat to the other side of the Aegean Sea. He made for Hatra, which at that point was an independent kingdom, with shifting alliances. Hatra, in today's northern Iraq, was south and a tad west of Mosul, about 70 miles away. The kingdom controlled the surrounding territory and had been an important frontier region allied with the Parthians for many years. The Roman emperors Trajan in the 110s and Septimius Severus in the late 190s tried to take the city, but never could. At this point, Hatra switched allegiances to the Roman side. Joseph Weishofer writes that, quote, the people of Hatra knew that their relative autonomy in the later Parthian period had been made possible by the weakness of the Arsacid central government and was now in peril from the declared political designs of the Sasanians, unquote. Ardashir, however, failed to take Hatra. Cassius Dio, who was essentially writing his famous Historia Romana, Roman history, as this all happened, wrote that Ardashir, quote, after conquering the Parthians in three battles and killing their king, Artabanus, made a campaign against Hatra, in the endeavor to capture it as a base for attacking the Romans. He actually did make a breach in the wall, but when he lost a good many soldiers through an ambuscade, he moved against Media. Of this country, as also of Parthia, he acquired no small portion, partly by force and partly by intimidation, and then marched against Armenia, unquote. He tried to take Armenia, where Tiridates II, in Arsacid and cousin of Artabanes and Vologasus, ruled. Armenia was a client kingdom of Rome, or at least very closely allied at this point, and he was able to fend off Ardashir's invasion. Armenia had some help, at least initially. It seems that Roman forces, as well as Kushan forces, those are the guys from the empire to the east of the Sassanids, were involved in stopping the invasion. Eventually, those allies withdrew, but Armenia was strong enough to fight off Ardashir. He never was able to take it. Another ally stopping Ardashir may have been the small kingdom of Albania. Not the Albania just northwest of Greece, but the Albania in the eastern Caucasus Mountains. This small kingdom on the western coast of the Caspian Sea, northeast of Armenia, is sometimes referred to as Caucasian Albania. It probably was ruled by Vologas's son, Vachagan. It's possible that Vologasus was still actually alive and, having fled from Babylonia, was ruling Caucasian Albania, or had done so and then passed his new, much smaller kingdom to his son. It would make sense, then, to assume that some of his loyalists, who had stayed with him when he ruled Babylonia and was having a civil war with his brother, had accompanied him up to Albania. Either way, it was a small independent kingdom, and it is likely that Albania helped Armenia fight off Ardashir as well. Ardashir, stymied from moving further west, looked to the east and the neighboring Kushan Empire's territory in Bactria. Bactria, in today's Afghanistan, was certainly part of the Achaemenid Empire, and Ardashir wanted to pull that into his realm as well. He conquered at least the western parts of the Kushan Empire. We know even fewer details about these wars, but we know he was able to add the city of Merv to the Sasanian Empire. 
Merv was a major oasis city along the Silk Road in what is today's eastern Turkmenistan. Ardashir likely helped precipitate the fall of the Kushan dynasty, which had crumbled by about the year 230. Pushing the ruling dynasty east, he installed vassal kings in Bactria. This was known as the Kushanu Sasanian Kingdom, and the kings of the Kushans, the Kushanshahs, were loyal to the Sasanian Empire. As for the Sasanian Empire itself, Ardashir wanted to have more direct control of it, which was necessary for the expansion of his empire, according to the Encyclopedia Iranica. Quote, Ardashir appears to have discerned that an irredentist and offensive policy would have no chance of success without prior stabilization of conditions within the empire. The Parthian central government's dependence on local magnates and tribal leaders and the autonomy acquired by the aristocratic and tribal interests had for two centuries curbed foreign policy and repeatedly enabled dangerous adversaries, above all the Romans, to exploit internal troubles, unquote. In other words, Ardashir knew that he probably couldn't restore the boundaries of the Achaemenid Empire without more control of the empire itself. Parthia was, in some ways, at least vaguely reminiscent of the kingdoms of Western Europe in the early Middle Ages. The king had very few troops of his own, and basically had to request armies from his sub-kings whenever he wanted to fight. This is why it took Artabanus a while to get the army in place to fight back against the Romans. Ardashir was named King of Kings and probably had direct authority over farce and media, at least. But it was a geographically sprawling empire, and he still needed people to help him administer it. In the far-off eastern regions, he had the vassal kings of the Kushanu Sasanian kingdoms. Closer in, he used something like satraps, the governors of Achaemenid Persia and the subsequent empire of Alexander. These satraps were also nobility, local chieftains, or in some cases, close relatives of Ardashir that were installed to keep everyone in line. The Cambridge History states, quote, Ardashir not only defeated local rulers, but, unlike the Parthians who usually left them on their thrones as clients or vassals, the Sasanian ruler removed many of them and appointed members of his family as his lieutenants. There was an Ardashir king of Merv, another Sasanian king of Kerman, and still a third Ardashir king of the Sakas, all under Ardashir king of kings. Presumably they were members of the extended royal family of the Sasanians. There were some dignitaries that no doubt existed in some form or another during the rule of the Parthian Arsacids and were able to remain in place, especially if they switched sides quickly enough. And religious leaders probably had some deferential treatment. Zoroastrianism would eventually take a very prominent role in the administration of the empire, and Ardashir probably instituted some of that at this point. The Parthian Empire was essentially a Zoroastrian one, but the Sasanian version was much more so. During Ardashir's reign, the fire temples of Zoroastrianism certainly played roles in things like his coronation. He described himself as a worshipper of Ahura Mazda, the supreme being of Zoroastrianism. And remember, the Sasanian rebellion may well have started with help from, or even directly by, the priestly leadership in farce. Under Ardashir, Christians enjoyed some amount of freedom. Syria especially was quite Christian. Antioch was one of the three or four centers of Christianity in its first four or five centuries, 
Judaism received less tolerance, perhaps because at the time, it was more entrenched than Christianity. And in Judaism, religious and legal matters tended to go hand in hand, so there was more independence of rule in Jewish communities. This didn't go so well with absolute direct rule, and led to many conflicts, including a few with the Roman Empire a little over a century before. There was also a famous fight over this with the Macedonian-led Seleucid Empire, one of the Sasanian predecessor states, which is celebrated during Hanukkah today. Ardashir's successor and son, Shapur, was a more religious emperor, or at least used religion to help consolidate his rule, and the priesthood rose in prominence. Shapur was also somewhat religiously tolerant. Christianity spread in the empire under his rule, and Manichaeism, once a thriving religion in the Middle East, was born and allowed to flourish. Back to Ardashir. In 230 AD, he was back in the west, attacking Rome's furthest eastern outposts. He tried to take Nispus, where that three-day battle between Rome and Parthia, the last between the two powers, had taken place, but was unable to capture the fortress. He didn't stop there, though, and raided into Syria and even Cappadocia. The Roman Emperor Severus Alexander took an army and marched down to Antioch in response in late 231. Some Roman accounts say it went badly for them. Others said it went well. There were certainly some great victories for the Sassanids. The Roman armies had been split up, and a Roman army marching towards Tessaphon seems to have been completely destroyed. And there were also reports of losses by the Romans in Armenia. But the battles probably didn't do too much to change the status quo. Ardashir wasn't able to take advantage. Perhaps the Sassanids had significant losses as well, or, since we are talking less than 10 years into his reign as emperor, maybe he had to run off and quell some rebellion. The Romans didn't feel like it was a total loss, though, because since the Sassanids didn't continue the invasion and attacks, they got what they wanted out of the war. Severus Alexander went back to Rome and celebrated a triumph. Ardashir, though, wasn't done in that region for good. Severus Alexander died in 235. This is considered the beginning of Rome's crisis of the 3rd century, when the empire eventually split in three for a time, until it was finally wholly restored about 50 years later. Ardashir tried to take advantage of the chaos. He went after Nispus again, as well as Cari, and took them both. Hatra, though, was a tougher nut to crack, and that small kingdom once again defeated the Persians, this time at the Battle of Sharazur in 238. Or at least they drove them from the field. Losses may not have been great, but it saved the caravan city for a brief time. Ardashir returned to Hatra, though, and after a long siege, the city finally capitulated in the summer of 240. He destroyed Hatra, no doubt murdering many of the inhabitants. But today... Despite some demolition by ISIS, Hatra remains one of the most well-preserved cities of the late Parthian slash very, very early Sassanid era. After taking Hatra, Ardashir may have been 60 years old or close to it. His son Shapur was in his 20s and had already commanded parts of the army during Ardashir's many battles. In April of 240, maybe as the siege of Hatra was still going on, Shapur was crowned as emperor. This may have been a co-emperor thing to ensure his succession, 
or it may have been an abdication by an old, and perhaps physically weak at this point, Ardashir. There is still scholarly debate today over whether or not the two ever ruled together. It is, however, generally agreed upon that Ardashir did survive a bit longer, and probably died in February of 242. The Persian capture of Nisbis, Karai, and Hatra would bring the Romans back in force under Gordian III. The Roman army didn't reach Upper Mesopotamia until 243, though, and by this point, Ardashir was gone. His son Shapur had taken over the empire for him, and Shapur lost this first conflict. Territory was ceded to the Romans. But Shapur ended up being a very successful emperor. He conquered Armenia, and in 260 AD, he fought and completely annihilated a Roman army of 70,000 men. He captured or killed the Roman Emperor Valerian, and the surviving Romans were probably held in some sort of slavery throughout the Sasanian Empire. The skilled Roman military engineers were almost certainly used to help with infrastructure building in this new Persian Empire. The Sasanids continued as a leading power in the region, stretching from Mesopotamia to the Hindu Kush mountains. The empire remained a great rival to the Romans, and in the 6th century, it took territory well into Anatolia from the Eastern Roman Empire. By the 7th century, though, the Byzantines had recovered, and the Sasanian Empire was pushed back. The fighting weakened both, and the empire, thanks to economic decline, warfare, and social conflict, as well as an inability to keep a strong emperor on the throne, was ripe for the taking. The Islamic conquest of Persia was not without resistance, but in about 20 years, the caliphate from the Arabian Peninsula had conquered and destroyed the Sasanid Empire. The Sasanian dynasty of Persia had ruled the region for just over four centuries, and what Ardashir had established was more coherent and more influential, and much more Persian, than the Parthian dynasty it had replaced. Persian art and architecture flourished at the time, and it became the basis for a good portion of what is today considered Islamic culture, at least in that region. According to the Encyclopedia Iranica, quote, Ardashir succeeded in creating a second Persian empire, which was recognized for over four centuries as one of the two great powers in Western Asia and Europe. It also stood as a great shield in defense of the culture of Western Asia against the constant onrush of Central Asian nomads. He left a lasting memory as a model king, a city builder, no fewer than eight were said to have been founded by him, an administrative reformer, and a consolidator of the Zoroastrian religion, unquote. Ardashir, familiar with the Achaemenid Empire that had been the most powerful in the world, until it was destroyed by Alexander the Great five centuries before his lifetime, recreated it as best he could. In doing so, he started an empire that was often more of a threat to the Romans than the Romans were to it, influenced the region and the world, and one that lasted 400 years. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week, we focus right around the time this episode concluded, the middle of the 7th century AD but we'll be far away from the Arab conquests on the other side of Asia to learn about a queen who held her country together and put it in position to conquer its centuries-old rivals and unite a region. Thanks for listening. <laughs>